Blake Osler graduated from Brigham Young University with a Bachelor's of Art in Philosophy and a Bachelor of Science in Psychobiology. He then graduated in 1985 as a William Leary Scholar from the University of Utah with a Juris Doctorate. Blake Osler has published widely on Mormon philosophy and professional academic philosophical journals such as Religious Studies, International Journey for the Philosophy of Religion, and Element, the Journal of the Society for Mormon Philosophy and Theology, as well as Mormon scholarly publications such as Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, Sunstone, BYU Studies, and Farms Review of Books. He is the author of the multi-volume series Exploring Mormon Thought. He has also taught philosophy at Brigham Young University as an adjunct instructor. Fratello Ostler is fluent in Italian and French, conversant in Swedish and Spanish, and conducts scholarly research in German, Egyptian, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He loves spending his time with his wife and five children and enjoys fly fishing, playing racquetball, four-wheeling, and watching BYU football. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Welcome, Blake Osler, to LDS Perspectives. Thank you for coming on. Delighted to be here. I want to introduce the subject that we're going to be talking about today, and it kind of is based on uh, your book series, Exploring Mormon Thought. What we're going to talk about, what I would categorize as probably the most important subject or the subject of greatest eternal significance, probably also the most controversial subject in the history of mankind, and that is the nature and character of God. Is this the most important subject with regard to our eternal standing? Yes and no. No in that. It has to be the case that one's eternal standing is not dependent on either one's ability to understand God or to elucidate either the character and or nature of God. Okay. <laughs> Let me give an example. I, we used to have, she, she died recently, a woman in our ward who was, she was German. She was the only member in her entire town in Germany, and she was just relentlessly harassed because of it. The woman was a saint, but she could not have elucidated a theory of the nature of God, could not have coherently expressed the character of God, and would never have deigned to understand God and how one comes to know about him in any way. What's important is the content of one's character, the love that one manifests in life, and the countenance of Christ that one reflects in one's image. Those are the important things. What life is about is giving us the opportunity to grow in our ability to love, in our ability to feel love when we receive it. It's something that none of us have perfected, that we all have a lot to learn about. For us, for whom the example of Jesus Christ is most important, I consider him to be the fullest expression of love. I'm always amazed when I think about the man who walked around the Palestinian countryside 2,000 years ago who still so greatly influences all of humanity. And so those are the important things, the ability to understand philosophy, the ability to express a theory. These are wonderful things because I believe that they add dimensions to one's religious commitment. And it is precisely the, the religious person, it's precisely the devoted person, the person whose heart is fully committed, who will seek with every faculty available to be with God, to understand, if you will, and to more fully grasp what it is that we're called to be. Okay. Well, we'll flesh out that thesis a little bit more as we go on. But to be clear to the listener, 
your book is a book of philosophy. Yep. It was written to be a, an upper division level philosophy course originally. So as a work of philosophy, the process of logic and philosophy is that you have to start at some point and progress from there. So in this particular case, your book starts out with a lot of background on some of these theories that have been presented throughout time. And so I want to briefly, if we can, maybe put out some of those theories that maybe have been even considered as an LDS person, perhaps unknowingly. Sure. Um, but what are some of the, those more common ones that we can know about but can also easily dismiss? My first volume begins with a simple question. When we use the word God, what are we referring to? This is a very large area in philosophy, by the way. A lot of people are asking, what if God doesn't exist? How can you refer to something that's not there? <laughs> right. Which is a very basic question in philosophy. But I flesh out different ways that the word God is used. And God is used both as a reference to a person, as a reference to a community, as a reference to a title, as a reference to an essential set of properties. So we use the word God in all these different ways. I think that LDS thinkers have ranged all the way from what I'm going to call an absolutist view, one that was held at least to some degree by the Pratt brothers, by Charles Penrose, who was a member of the first presidency around the turn of the century, and famously by um, Bruce McConkie, and, and to a, a more or less also by his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, who of course was the prophet of the church. This is a view that when we say God is omnipotent, they really mean it. God can do virtually anything, <laughs> okay? Yeah. And when God is omniscient, they really mean, oh, in the classical sense, he knows the future and maybe in some ways even outside of time, okay? As in the classical view, how a Mormon asserts that is, is problematic, of course. And then you have thinkers that I think have been more educated in the way that they have approached the issues. I think that B.H. Roberts, though self-taught, he, he was remarkably well-educated on these kinds of issues, at least for the kind of general discussion in his day who developed um, more or less a finitist view of God. Now, I'm going to distinguish a finitist view from what I'm going to call a limited view. Okay. The finitist view is most famously demonstrated by Brigham Young. Brigham Young came up with the view, and he probably thought he was reflecting what Joseph Smith taught, that there is an endless series of gods, that our God learned to be a god by following the laws that had been laid down by those gods. There was a time, uh, an eternity, during which the being that we take to be God was not a god, was not divine, in other words, and that at some point in time actually reached the status of being divine. You know, at some point, uh, there's a whole lot of, of uh, matter that the gods just didn't quite get around to, and it's kind of modeled on the on the notion of a of a son who grows up and becomes self-sufficient and then leaves the farm goes off and develops his own farm quite independently of of you know his father and and the prior family and goes off and takes wives with him to populate the universe it's uh it's hayseed theology at its most extreme <laughs> okay okay but not many people have followed Brigham Young fully in what he taught, and for good reason, I may add. And then, of course, you have the more moderate view of the the Pratt brothers were kind of on the other side of that, as I and they opposed Brigham Young. There was actually an ongoing feud between them, as most people know. And so we have a, a plethora of views in Mormonism. On one end, you have the learned, limited view of 
God taught by B.H. Roberts, that when we use terms such as omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and so forth, that we have to qualify those given the materialism inherent in Mormonism. By materialism, I mean the commitment that ultimately all things reduce to matter or a material substrate, if you will, and that God is, is limited to the extent that he can't create out of nothing. And so it follows from the rejection of creation ex nihilo, which Joseph Smith clearly rejected, that God is limited in respects that the classical God is not. What's interesting is is most Mormons, I think, have been very unaware that there are actually different views of God being taught. And so I believe it's in my third chapter where I talk about different views of God in Mormonism. And I have kind of a chart I give between the differences between the absolutist view held by the Pratts and McConkie, um, where God is unlimited and outside of time, and the view of Roberts and others that, and, and John Witzow. Witzow is kind of the furthest that one can go in terms of the finitism. Um, and he modeled God kind of after a scientist. Amazing that a scientist like Witzow would see God as the most fully developed scientist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it happens all the time still today. But so we have this range of views. For Witzow, God was precisely, you know, more fully like what Brigham Young taught, except for he was much more nuanced than Brigham Young, and he didn't teach that God went to a part of the universe with his wives to populate what hadn't quite gotten to. <laughs> The easy way to say this in a few words is in the tradition, God is the unmoved mover, and in process thought, God is the most moved mover. In the tradition, we have these various ideas, and in Mormonism, we have kind of a reflection of those ideas. Yeah. The rest of the time, I hope, is a conversation where we take the listener through a journey on how to come to know God. So in order to do this, there's probably a series of questions that we'll explore and how we'll approach this topic even further. To what extent is God knowable? Is this something that is a waste of time? In Deuteronomy, there's this passage where it talks about a person who goes looking across the sea to find the truth and looks on top of the mountains and then goes under the sea. (laughs) And all along, the person had what they were looking for right in their own heart. It was already there with them, the way the law is written on our hearts. God is as much a part of who and what we are as our own being, and so to go look for God is to miss God. I'm going to put this into kind of a different light. The knowledge of God is something that comes with us. And the Mormon theory of knowledge is essentially, and this is embodied in section 93, we're, we're intelligences. And that is, we're intelligent. We know God. His, his light and being are already proceeding from his presence to be embodied within us. But it's through the traditions of man and the hardness of our own hearts that we shut God out. And therefore, there's darkness. <laughs> and we don't know God. The short answer is we don't know God because we've shut him out. The real question is, can we know ourselves? There's this old Greek aphorism, know thyself. And the reason that it was so important in coming to know ourselves, we've come to know what is already inherent within our knowledge. In Kantian terms, in this world, we come into this world with categories in place through which we kind of filter reality, if you will. For Kant, these are the logically necessary conditions of experience, but I'm going to expand it beyond that a bit to, to make sense of it in terms of an experience I think everybody has. You're in, a, you're in a store, and all of a sudden a song comes on that you really like, and you go, hey, there's music playing. <laughs> Before that, I was completely blocking it out. Right. Or it's like a husband. Are you married? Yeah. Okay, it's like this. Women complain about this all the time. There you are reading the newspaper, and your wife comes up and starts to talk to you. 
And then she says, have you heard anything I've said? And you say yes. And she says, okay, what did I say? And you realize you haven't heard a word she said. Well, you may have heard it, but you didn't. Well, you faked it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you blocked it out because you were focusing on something else. Right. So in that one, you were so focused that you were blocking out a good deal of your experience. So it was actually more important than what you were focusing on. Right. <laughs> which is the way it is with God, by the way. So we have these filters in place as human beings. They're given in our nature and of what we are. For Kant, the question is, and he makes this distinction, it's an incredibly important distinction, and I think it will withstand any scrutiny that people put it to. And I'm a neurophysiologist, and so I know that this is more true than, than we want to admit. There's a distinction between the thing as it is in and of itself and the thing as we experience it, okay? I'll never get the thing inside my head to actually experience it as it actually is. I only see it and experience it as it is for me. That is, as I have taken and filtered it through my categories and my past experience. And I, we have a chair in here, and I call it a chair because that's what my parents called it. But if it didn't have four legs and it only had three, would it still be a chair? Well, probably. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. Right. Um, I'm not, the chair isn't in my head to actually grasp it. And so Kant called what we experience the phenomena, and what is the thing in and of itself is the noumena, but we never actually reach the noumena. But the fact is, is God is a noumena. <laughs> okay. Moreover, I mean, we'd have to admit that this, any believer is going to say that the distance between us and God is probably greater than the distance between us and the, the ability to understand an ant, okay, which has virtually no ability to understand. I mean, it's really just beyond us. And so when we approach God, we're approaching a being whose experience is so beyond where we are that it's not merely beyond what we imagine, it's beyond what we can imagine. So can we know God? So the truth is subjectivity. When we experience God, if we experience God at all, it's because God is given in our reality. We find him in our hearts. We don't find him by looking across the sea. If we go searching for God, we're missing what we already know. <laughs> you know, there's, there's actually a quote from Joseph Smith that I wanted to share that's kind of along those lines. It says, uh, having a knowledge of God, we begin to know how to approach him and how to ask so as to receive an answer. When we understand the character of God and know how to come to him, he begins to unfold the heavens unto us and to tell us all about it. When we're ready to come to him, he's ready to come to us. Yeah, which is kind of an aphorism for when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, right? In a way. <laughs> but um, it is also kind of implying what you're talking about as far as it being more within us than we may have kind of considered. So what is the first question that one should ask in their quest to come to know God? The fact is, is that God is given in our consciousness. In fact, psychological studies show it, we are wired and built in a way that belief comes to us as, as the kind of species that we are. Cognitively, we are wired to believe. And it takes a good deal of talking ourselves out of what we believe in order to become an agnostic or an atheist. Would that be the light of Christ that we often refer to, or is that something different? Right. It's the light of Christ. It's the intelligence of God. It is the givenness of his power and intelligence that proceed forth from his presence to indwell within us, as sections 88 and 93 teach. It's already given in our very being. So the idea then would be that we need to at least plant that seed that God could possibly be. The, yeah, the answer to how do we come to know God is simply to be authentic. Okay. To be open, to be vulnerable, and to be willing to know what is already given. God has called us to an either relationship. To know God is not to know about God, not to know about his, his nature or his attributes or what omniscience means. In fact, that could pull one further away from knowing God. To know God is to, to be with God. 
I would say to experience God, but that would be a misstatement. That again would be an objectivity, right? Because I'm not it's what you're observing or right, your senses right. are telling. You. Yeah, it's, it's what I can sense when we're coming to God in this way. There is this uh, requirement of openness and vulnerability. So we come to know God not by by having control of everything, but by letting go of control. Interesting. We don't come to know God by studying all about it. We come to know God by letting him reveal himself to us already in the givenness of our being in the world. Now, there seems to be a little bit of an irony to that because your book was written very much like a study. If one were to think that my book had anything to do with Sunday school, they would be sadly mistaken. Sure, (laughs) sure. Your process, your approach in the book was, as you mentioned before, to to even analyze the word God and its uses. It's not a proper name. I mean, it, it's not like Frank. It could be. I, I guess it could be. Yeah. But in all indications, that's not ever what it was meant to be. I guess the basic problem for humans is that we usually end up describing God in what is the greatest idealization of who and what we are, right? That's why I made fun of scientists who want to make God the ultimate scientist. Right. And there's a good deal of truth to the fact that we create God in our own image. To get back to this idea of maybe how we historically as a people or even as individuals have talked about God. Again, we use the words omniscience, omnipotence, sometimes even omnibenevolence. But we haven't really taken the time to think about what those imply. And as you said before, sometimes we use those terms with qualifiers. Yeah. So if we are to describe God beyond love in a little bit more of, uh, let's go with the word subjective experiences, but even ones that we can observe as the character of someone who is a God, what might some of those be? And I know philosophers kind of explore these things in the paradoxes, the can God create a rock he cannot lift idea. How do we then as Latter-day Saints, how should The answer is yes, he can. He can. Okay. (laughs) So if God is omnipotent, does that mean he has the power to change the past? These are questions that some people have explored as ways of trying to come to know God. Let me give a concrete story, and I'm going to talk about experiences I had with Neil Maxwell, both because he expressly gave me permission to do so, and because I want to talk about a person for whom I have the highest respect and whom I regard as being extremely intelligent, and who was in a position of authority in the LDS Church. I wrote a paper for a philosophy class by Truman Matson. It was about God's timelessness. Thankfully, I got an A, and he, <laughs> Truman, if you remember Truman Matson, amazing guy. Uh-huh. I loved, loved and loved Truman. He came to me and he said, you know, you've, you've expressed this so well. I wonder if you'd be willing to go talk with Neil about this. I said, Neil? He said, yeah, Neil Maxwell. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he said, you know, I've had this ongoing discussion with Neil Maxwell about why God can't be outside of time, but you've given real good arguments for it, and I wonder if you'd be willing to go talk with him about that. He like, said, sure? Yeah, I was an undergrad. I mean, I was a junior at BYU, and it's okay. kind of like, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to go instruct an apostle of the Lord. So he set up the meeting, and and I went with my friend uh, Wally Johnson to talk with Elder Maxwell, and the the subject that we were talking about was timelessness. Neil Maxwell had written things about, and he had based it upon a statement that was in the Times and Seasons about everything being one eternal round with God. You're familiar with the passage. Mm-hmm. It was the most amazing thing. We went to the church office building in Salt Lake. We go there, and he takes us back into his office. He kicks his shoes off, puts his feet up, literally puts his feet up on his desk, lays back, and says, Neil says you're here to instruct me and to set me straight. So, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I mean, Truman says you're, yeah. you're here to set me straight. To my discredit, it didn't even dawn on me how arrogant this was, but um, <laughs> you know, 
I just said, yeah, I, I mean, you've written these things about God being timeless, and you quote Boethius, a, you know, a sixth-century Christian philosopher, one of the best. And it's fine for Boethius because he's, he's a Catholic, and God doesn't have any material reality about him, but we believe in a God who has a body. And all God's got to do is stretch out his hands, and for any body that's a real body, I can ask, how long does it take to travel between the outstretched distance of his fingers? So if God has a body, there's no way he's outside of time. I gave several other arguments that I also give in my book about why God can't be timeless. I said if God creates and he has a relation to a created reality that's ongoing, he can't be outside of time. If God can't change the past, he can't be outside of time. If God has any real relation with a temporal being, he can't be outside of time. If God plans anything, he can't be outside of time because the plan means you think about something that hasn't occurred yet to bring it about. Yeah. If God remembers, he can't be outside of time. The Bible says he remembers. You may not believe God remembers, or you may want to look for some analogical meaning of that, but that's what it says. He was an amazing guy because he didn't seem to have any ego about these kind of things. And he said, you know, I didn't really realize the fact that Boethius was in a different theological tradition would have very different consequences for his views of God. But I can see now that it does. I wonder if you would be willing to allow me to write you a letter that you can quote from where we can kind of allow me to correct this misimpression. Wow. And so he did. I have the letter. He wrote it to me, and I used, quoted it in a footnote in an article that I wrote for Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, um, called The Mormon Concept of God, where I talk about timelessness and God. We think about God in different ways, but often we don't understand that the ideas we're using come from a tradition that really isn't in any way compatible with LDS beliefs. If we really believe that the ultimate reality is love and that God has invited us into a relationship and we think about the nature of love, it becomes clear immediately that love can't be coerced. Right. It must be something that's freely chosen. It's a gift that's freely given. And so it can't be that God is all-controlling, <laughs> right? If God controlled my relationship with him so that he chose whether I loved him or not, love wouldn't even be a possibility. Right. So we begin with this basic reality, and I rewrite theology beginning from the assumption that our relationship with God begins in a free choice. Free will. Yeah, free will. And so free will becomes essential. There's a problem that immediately arises for me if we have free will. If God knows the future, then there's only one future that is compatible with what God knows. That's the one he knows is going to be. But if I'm free, I have to be able to act in different ways to bring about what I choose. Right. That immediately conflicts with God's foreknowledge because if I can do that, then I have power to change what God knew in the past. That would give me power to do something that's impossible to do, which is to change the past. Right. So I argue at some length that God's foreknowledge is not compatible with free will. And I look very carefully at the classical and current discussion and philosophy about that issue. Turns out literally reams of paper have been printed on this issue, a very high-level, intelligent discussion, and come to the conclusion that every argument that's been given to reconcile foreknowledge and free will won't work and that they truly are incompatible. What does that mean? So I give a definition of what I call contingent omniscience. God knows all probabilities in the moment of how probable they are. So, for instance, if I have stage 3 cancer, God knows the probability I'm not going to live another year. It's already given in the way things are. But probabilities are changing all the time, so God's knowledge of probabilities is changing. But also the choices that we make until we make the choices are not known. However, God knows all possibilities. Mm-hmm people immediately will question, well, how could God have sovereignty? That is, how could God have any control over the world in a way that his plans would be realized? So I redefine omniscience and, and give a chess player analogy. Okay? A master chess player. I yeah, that. This is first given by William James, um, a Harvard professor, a pragmatic philosopher. 
It's like a master chess player. If a master chess player is playing a novice, he's going to win. He may not know exactly which moves the novice will make, but he knows whatever moves the novice makes, he has moves that will counter it. <laughs> and eventually, he's going to arrive at checkmate. And God is much more capable than the greatest chess player who's ever existed, even than any computer who's ever played the game. <laughs> and we don't know exactly what free choices people will make, but God knows and has a plan for whatever choices are made, what he can do to compensate for those choices and to use them in his plan to bring about a more beautiful tapestry, if you will. It also assumes a kind of power. We can talk about omnipotence now, if you want. Yeah. Okay. Well, it must immediately be apparent, and I, I give a lot of discussion, we have this notion that God can bring about anything logically possible. It's logically possible that I do a free act, but it's not logically possible that God does my free act, or it wouldn't be mine. So immediately, the notion that God can do anything that's logically possible to do has to be modified so that God doesn't bring about my acts. So human freedom places some limits on God's ability to do things. Further, it must be immediately apparent that God can't bring about reality to be something different than it was. Um, otherwise, we violate the most basic law of logic, right? And so God can't, can't change the past. He can't bring about a reality that's inconsistent with what's occurred in the past. In any event, through the discussion, I come up with a notion of God's almighty power, if you will. And that is not that God can do anything that's logically possible. And I give four conditions, essentially, on what God can do. It has to be compatible with God's attributes. For instance, if God can bring about anything that's logically possible, it's possible for me to sin. But most people hold it's not possible for God to sin. <laughs> I think it is possible for God to sin, but certainly God can't do things that are incompatible with his basic attributes. And God can't do anything that is brought about freely by another agent. God can't change the past, and he's not required to create out of nothing as a result, because if the universe has eternally existed and God can only bring about what is consistent with what's been in the past, and if that is a fact, then God need not be able to create the universe in, in order to have almighty power. Once we've carefully defined what omniscience could mean given the reality of loving relationships and the fact that God doesn't create out of nothing, we come up with, a, I, I think, a more adequate view of the kind of power that God has. Where the rubber really hits the ground, and this is you know, something that I discuss in my second volume, is like when we're praying to God to bring things about for us, petitionary prayer. <laughs> and so the question then becomes, well, can I pray for my friend to make a free choice? that I want him to make. Does it make sense for me to pray for the environment in the natural world? Does God have power over natural laws? When we talk about free will, the question that a lot of people come up with after that, with this whole freedom to act, is the problem of evil. Right. Which, of course, David Polson addresses in some of his writings. Well, David Polson and I have a jointly authored article that is in a fetch shrift um, for Truman Matson. And David and I work together at some length on the problem of evil. There is what I call a plan of salvation view of, of um, the problem of evil. And this is a fully developed view where the commitment is that what God is after is to bring us to a relationship that he enjoys, a relationship of complete love. This relationship is of such supreme and superlative value that it justifies any finite evils that may be necessary to encounter in order to have the possibility of achieving it. God has set up the world as a school, if you will, to teach us how to come to that kind of relationship over and over and over. I believe that the world is set up so that we get the same issues presented to us over and over and over again until we finally learn to overcome them and learn to love 
and then we get to move on. So this idea, though, that this absolutist tradition that we referred to earlier, there seems to be very little justification for that. You know, I think that it's incoherent from the get-go, and within Mormonism in particular, I can't see justification for that absolutist view. It just happens to be something that, that most people have inherited. There's all of this linguistic baggage in the way that we use our terms because the earliest Mormon converts came from Protestantism and Catholicism and continued to use the same terms. I mean, you know, we use the term chair because our parents used it that way, and they use the term omniscience that way because their parents used it that right. way. <laughs> yeah, part of that subjective experience. Yeah. We talked about a lot of different things. There's days worth of discussion that could still be had about this for sure. But we do talk about this idea that we are a people that do have to approach or we teach that we can become like God. So we do have to kind of have a target. Yeah. Of, of where we're going for. It's not become like God, it's become God. Become God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is the process of becoming God, at least in part, coming through the process, the mental processes, the philosophical processes of coming to know characteristics of God, kind of like what you've talked about, that you take your argument of, if I say God is absolutely powerful, what does that mean next? How does that dovetail with other things or doesn't dovetail with other things that we know to be true and revealed? Yeah, because I'm an obnoxious philosopher, I'm going to back up again. Hey, back up all you need to. <laughs> We talk about becoming gods, but the commandment to to be perfect as I or my Father in heaven is, is in the present tense, not in the future tense. Be ye therefore perfect, even as I or your Father in heaven is perfect. And that is because um, the nature of God is never fully complete. Divinity is always growing, always self-surpassing. So however, however great God is in any moment has been surpassed in the next moment, Okay. Human beings are the same way. We are already divine. We have the divine nature inherent within us. We are offspring of God. And I don't want to say that literally. I want to say it metaphorically in a way that would take me three days to explain, but I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> um, what I want to say is that we have inherent within us this capacity for divinity. And we already express it to the ex extent we express love for one another, to the extent that we fulfill the purpose that we were born to fulfill, to the extent that we show kindness. So it's not as if, though, there's this perfection that is someday we're going to realize it. I'm already the best me that's ever been, okay? <laughs> Just so you know, nobody does me better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so what I want to say about becoming like God is that there's this challenge already built in. We're already the children of God, and now we're being challenged to be something that we already are. <laughs> so there's this being already, but not yet. Because none of us are fully who we are. I mean, the fact is, is we think of divinity as fully mature humanity. And our humanity is still in the process of maturing, as is divinity, by the way, because it's an ongoing eternal progression. And this, too, is, is constant with process thought, where God is always self-surpassing. Whatever God has realized in one moment, his experience extends into new novel reality. The next moment is, and is more complete. Okay? Partially by our experiences intertwining with his. I exactly. And, and by the fact that we glorify each other, okay? I want to make this very easy. I want to take perfectionism and turn it into something wonderful rather than a huge burden. Got it. In okay. this way. We're already perfect in every sense that we're required to be perfect. <laughs> okay. Okay. The fact That's, is— Well, you're going to have to explain that. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm about to do that. Okay. We're down here to have experiences, but we couldn't fail to have experiences. So merely by having experiences, we're, f we're fulfilling the purpose for which we came. This is a no-lose proposition. <laughs> 
everything we experience is for our good. Everything. And so this wasn't set up as a you-lose proposition. Moreover, it's very simple. People think there's this long laundry list of commandments they need to keep. I'm going to simplify this. First of all, the word commandment comes from the word that, that is like comanere, means to give a hand, to lend a hand. The commandments are not burdens. It's not like a military command, I command you to do this. It's like, let me give you a hand to assist you to do this. <laughs> okay. And what is it that God is giving us a hand? All of the commandments are given for a simple purpose, to teach us how to learn of one another. So if you truly love a person, you don't steal from them, you don't kill them, you don't covet what they have, you, you get the idea that's kind of a minimal standard of love, right? I don't kill you. Yeah, that, right. that's really minimal. <laughs> but there's also this maximal standard of love that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is the challenge. It's like the love a parent has for a child. If my child comes to me and asks me for directions, I don't just point my finger. I walk the full distance with my child to show him. When my child is shivering, I don't just give him a coat. I take the coat off my very back and hand it to my child. When my child is angry and hits me... <laughs> Or so angry that they do something inappropriate, I don't hit them back. I turn my other cheek and say, you haven't hit this one yet. <laughs> you get the idea. Yeah. This is the kind of, of way that loving people respond to each other. And it's like, if I love my wife, it's not merely that I don't commit adultery. I love her so completely. I'm not. It doesn't even occur to me. My heart is set on her, not anybody else. It's not hard. <laughs> It's the easiest thing in the world when I truly love her. Moreover, when I truly love my, my children, it's not hard for me to do these things. I delight in doing them. When, when I truly love a person, these things that seem hard become very easy because they're the way my love expresses itself. And there's only one commandment. All the others are just appendages to teach us this one. Love each other the way I love you. That's the commandment. That's the only commandment. And this is easy. If we just be who we truly are, it flows from us naturally. The problem comes when we engage in self-deception, when we hide from ourselves the truth that we already know, when we try to be something that we're not, when we try to appear to be someone who we're not. We must deceive ourselves to hide from ourselves the knowledge of God. We must deceive ourselves to hide from ourselves the love that we naturally give so that every single one of us has essentially this kind of what I call a hard-heartening experience. We conclude at some point, I'm never going to let anybody hurt me like that again. And so I'm going to be a rock. You know, it's like the Simon and Garfunkel song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but rocks don't fill, but they don't love either. And rocks, you know, so what we do, we harden our hearts. Now, if you look in the Book of Mormon, this is the most common expression. And every single problem of the Book of Mormon, the root problem is a hard heart. And the solution to the problem is a soft heart or an open heart. Mm -hmm. Look at the Book of Mormon. Every single problem, the root problem is actually a hard heart. This is the human problem and, and what we're challenged to do. So at some point, you got the message. I got it. Everybody got it. You're no darn good. You'll never measure up. You'll never be enough. You're not as good at that as anybody else. <laughs> You're just not worth it. You suck. <laughs> okay. I could go on and on. We've all gotten this message. And it hurts to their very core. And so in order to hide this pain, we choose to stop feeling. We choose to stop being open. Not only will I not let you hurt me like that again, I'm going to preemptively control you so that you can't hurt me. Okay? And then we can justify all kinds of unloving behavior so that we can avoid being hurt again. So at the root of the human condition is this choice at a very fundamental level of who we are to just close down, shut off, build walls, close up, you know, close shop. 
not let anybody in. The problem is when we do that, we build walls that keep us in, that hide the bushel of light that we have. <laughs> we put our light under a bushel. Mm-hmm. We hide it. We don't share it. So we shut ourselves in and we shut everybody else out. They can't reach us. <laughs> it's as if though we don't even exist for them because they can't really get to us. And so we're just isolated, alienated. And so the, the challenge for human beings is to overcome this alienation. It's what atonement is all about. Right. Atonement is this relational reality of opening to let everybody else in and to let our light shine and to let ourselves out, to let go, if you will. And that's the ultimate free will, isn't it? It is the ultimate free will. Because otherwise we're letting other people reduce our choices. Yeah, the only, the only person who's truly free is the person who doesn't care what other people think. The only person who's truly free is the one that simply lets go and is who they are. Again, we could probably go on for days, but we're not going to. <laughs> so, so your, with, your listeners will be greatly relieved. <laughs> it's a very big file to download. <laughs> exactly. So at this point, what I want to give you is my gratitude for writing your book, books, I should say, because if anything, you helped me to come to know that I've not given nearly enough time to this subject that I should. It's possibly because I have been in different ways distracted or self-denied that that's a subject worth my time. Yeah. And, you know, for most people, it's so academic and so beyond that it's just nonsensical. But for me, it's the gift. I mean, people come to earth with gifts to give, and I knew this was one of the gifts I had to give, so I gave Well, we've been given the gift of not only free will, but the ability to reason, which I think was part of what we were intended to do. And one of the methods we were to come to know God. And, and to me, that's the real challenge that we have moving forward as not only a people, but as individuals going through this plan, going through this plan of salvation, is finding ways to illuminate our own minds with the end goal of understanding where that's to lead us yeah. into that unity of, of being, that unity of purpose. And again, we probably spend a whole bunch of time just talking about free will because that's a big portion of this gift that we've been given. It's a a huge area of philosophy and action theory, and I could go on for days and days and days, trust me. (laughs) Well, and it's funny. (laughs) You you brought up the free will thing before, and we talk about it with respect to the problem of evil. And I was thinking about it today that oftentimes when people see evil happen in their lives, their response is, well, why would God allow that? to happen, right. right? And if God is omnibenevolent, as we sometimes define him, therefore, why would this happen? And in its own way, we are prescribing to God an appraisal of the function yep. of those things, which is part of the problem. Well, uh, we want to encourage people to go pick up a copy of these books. Um, there's also a podcast that you do with your son exploring these Mormon thoughts. Yep. Uh, someone can go and download those and, and spend some more time with this subject, but I think you've given a lot to process at this point. I want to thank you for coming in. Thank you for your time and talking about this, and again, thank you for writing your books. Oh, thank you so much for your kindness. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.